impact, income, and influence. David Baer is an old-school direct marketer who has brought all his talent and skills from the last 30 years to the new school. He has truly transitioned, and he helps financial planners build their funnels and gain high-ticket clients. This episode was great. We cover a lot of stuff from what was working in the 90s, in the early 2000s, all the way up till now. And it's really interesting to hear his take on history and how direct marketing has changed and how that has influenced what he is doing right now. Enjoy. Impact, income, and influence is the three things that are most important to entrepreneurs today, and that's what this podcast is all about. If you're a coach, consultant, author, blogger, YouTuber, creator, or entrepreneur who believes what they do can change the world, this podcast is dedicated to you. I'm Steve Warner, and welcome to Impact, Income, and Influence. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one show for monetization strategy. I am your host, Steve Warner, and I am glad that you are here. A very special guest with us today, David Baer. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Stephen. Appreciate it. No problem. I am (laughs) excited to have you here. You have been in direct response marketing for more than two decades. Right now, your firm helps strategically advise people and bring gross revenues up in their business, but didn't always start or didn't always act like this. You actually started off selling classical music, which I'm kind of excited to hear how you transitioned from classical music to this. Why don't you tell us how this all started? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So early days as a marketer, uh, we're back in the mid nineties and uh, I was working, I, I had, done arts related stuff professionally, actually uh, danced on Broadway. I, I uh, went off to college. I became a stage manager professionally. And then I got into arts administration, worked at Lincoln Center in New York and a whole bunch of other places. And I, and I started running a performing arts center. Well, this was back in the days when email was just getting started. Right. I, I remember went off to college and this email, you know, thing was so cool. I could email my friends at different colleges and all of that. And um, and then people started getting AOL accounts, et cetera. CompuServe, Prodigy. Remember those? And, uh, and and it was also back in the days when a business would send email out and get this people would open all of the emails they received. And uh, so we recognized this as we were, you know, building out our uh, subscription seasons that not only should we start, you know, getting people's phone numbers and getting their, you know, physical mailing addresses to send brochures, but Hey, let's, we got this new website thing and we can communicate with them electronically. Let's leverage that. So we started collecting email addresses and I was an email marketer back in the nineties. So, um, I, I, you know, obviously there's a, there's a long uh, road from the classical music world to event production. I became a marketer in the wine industry, doing big events, and then ultimately uh, started a little marketing agency, uh, thinking I was going to serve wineries. But that's a that's a you know long story that we don't necessarily need to de- deeply dive into unless you have have something you're really curious about there. Well, I mean, did you? Uh... Did you have to exit the wine industry because you were drinking too much of the product? 
No, I, I still drink plenty of the product and uh, surround myself with uh, wine people. I, I consider myself a wine person, but no, it's um, uh, it, it's a great industry to be in. Uh, and I had the opportunity to do a lot of storytelling, which actually helped me as a copywriter in that in that industry, because in like so many industries, you know, the businesses are, are focused on doing the business that they do. And in the wine industry, you know, we were working with the, I, I was in the import world. So I was importing wines from little, uh, you know, farmers in Europe, for example, right? What do they know about marketing their wines, except, you know, I'm, uh, we've been in this uh, uh, industry for three generations. We have great exposure on the southern side of this hill. And I'm like, who cares about that? No I got to find some real good material to share in order to get this this product moving. So tell, do you, just off the cuff, do you remember any of the copy that you wrote? I'm actually a certified Psalm in a past life so we could talk about wine but like wine copy is always really interesting because yeah. honestly like the label sells unless somebody really knows wine you can show them a cool label and they're gonna buy and it could be a nine dollar bottle it could be a 90 dollar bottle it could be if it's a 900 bottle it's actually gonna have probably a pretty plain label in yeah. most cases but what did you come up with for copy because that's pretty well, interesting yeah so you know we were a, an importer and distributor we were selling to people who were in the business of buying wine but you know if it, did, did you do floor service as, as a stomp yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, so much of what we specialized in, I was doing, you know, natural winemaking, biodynamic wines, um, and some super geeky stuff. Um, you know, if, if I told you, you may, you may nod knowingly that I told you, you know, I worked uh, on the Louis Dresner portfolio, uh, okay. or others, you know, super geeky things that, you know, needed to be hand sold. So the, the writing that I did was really focused more around not, not necessarily the 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 words, but the, finding the right story, mm -hmm. and 100%. and it's almost always the story about the people. Um, I remember, and I'm trying to remember who this was. It was a, a Burgundy producer that we were working with through Becky Wasserman, who, um, you know, had gone off to the the French Air Force, and the the father was you know going to be retiring, and and the the son decides to come back and be a part of the family business, uh, even though he had this great career as, you know, a military and then a commercial pilot. And so we told his story and, and it was, you know, the, the passion of, you know, contributing to the family's uh, um, history and all of that. People love that stuff yeah. so much. If I learned, I mean, we would just learn little stories about the different wines that we were selling and just tell anything about them. And in a table side service, like, so I was a maitre d' of the restaurant and I worked as a Psalm uh, two nights a week when our Psalm was off. Mm -hmm. So I could hand sell something by telling a 30 second story about how I used to always tell the story about grapes being raisinated on the, on the mats oh, uh, sure. for super like, Tuscan. Bel Poche or Amarone. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that like, people be like, Oh my goodness, I can taste it. And you're like, uh -huh, sure you can. Yep. Like let's open another bottle. Let's get going. Um, so yeah, we we you, I, you, one of the biggest um, selling well certainly not a big selling wine but one of the uh, uh, stories that I would tell and I would go in and train train staff but so one of, one of the cool things was my um, my sales team 
I was a marketing director. My sales team would um, use me as bait to get a restaurant to take a buy the glass, uh, you know, um, purchase, right? So they would buy five cases at a time. We had plenty of stock on it. We could continue replenishing it. And we would often find some weird wines that we would get them to, you know, put by the glass. And then I would come in and I would share a whole bunch of storytelling techniques to the servers. And one of the stories that I remember, I can't remember whether it was Radicon, it was, it was somebody who was using amphora or clay in the, in their, um, uh, in, in, you know, their aging of the wines, um, raising the wines. And then we talked about uh, some, uh, I think they were using a, an egg shaped vessel. And I was telling them, you know, what the benefits or what the results of using an egg-shaped vessel were on the texture. And the and so I had one of these servers who went and told the story, you know, really excited about is this concrete egg and, and here's what it's going to do and here's what it's going to be texture-wise. And they got, you know, they came back to me the next time I saw them. They said, I've been telling that story and people are coming back to me left and right and saying, yeah, I taste it. I feel it. Just like with the, you know, the raisinated grapes you were talking about. It's great. I love it. I mean, that's like the reason my success in the restaurant industry was because I approached it as a sales job. I said, every time you go to the table, you are selling the service, you're selling the food, you're selling the experience. I mean, I worked in Michelin star restaurants, so it was easy to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, I mean, then I ran Vale's Fine Dining. So like working at the top of a mountain where you have to take a snowcat in, like that builds to the experience and people will splurge. We're, we're going down a rabbit hole here. So let's move from <laughs> wine, which is amazing. Yeah. And it is like the fact that direct marketing principles will sell wine, they'll sell classical music. And to your point, the winemakers, they fall into the same trap that everybody falls into, right? We make the best product. We have the XYZ 9,000 sitting in the barn. We have the South facing slopes, da, da, da. but that's not the story. So you learned yeah. the storytelling skills. Where'd you go from wine? So, you know, I, I moved from New York city to Portland, Oregon, and I was, uh, you know, here to, which is where I still am, uh, to, to get, um, uh, I work, work for another distributor. And, um, and then ultimately I started a little Facebook marketing agency back at the dawn of Facebook advertising. And I, I think I told you this at one point, um, uh, previously I, I walked in and started talking to you know, some of my friends who were uh, winery owners or a marketing director at, at, uh, one of our quote unquote, big wineries. We don't have big wineries here in Oregon. Um, and said, you know, we, we should probably, you know, leverage this new Facebook thing. I think it's going to be really, um, you know, uh, useful for you and getting people to come into the tasting room and, and all of that. And people just laughed me out of the room because they, they were like, why, why do we want to market to college kids? Because at that time, that's what Facebook was. It was, you know, it, it had matured a little bit, but it really has not be, hadn't been embraced to the degree that it is now. And so I, I was doing Facebook advertising. I really got to know that, um, that channel of, of advertising uh, really well. And I, I made some courses on the subject. I put, you know, threw them up on Udemy. I got a following. I've, I've, I think at this point, around 30,000 students on Udemy. And I started getting people reaching out to me to say, hey, David, I took your course. I loved it. It was great. I don't have time for this. Can I hire you? And suddenly I was in the Facebook advertising business, mostly for people who it turns out were coaches 
something I'd never heard of before. I didn't know what the heck a coach was. And I was specializing in Facebook ads for coaches. Wow. That's a big change. Coaches yeah. need wine, just yeah. in case you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, you start running, you start helping, like, so you became the ads agency before there were ads agency for coaches, because nowadays there's a gazillion of them floating around. Yes. Everyone thinks they can run ads. So how did that turn then what happened when you started running ads for coaches? Let's hear some of the success stories because I'm sure you had some pretty crazy success stories. Well, in the you know, days. Here, here's the thing about uh, at this point in time, you know, traffic was um, search traffic. So people who were getting traffic from Google, um, YouTube was not really understood widely by, you know, us uh, little, little, you know, businesses as a, as a traffic um, uh, originator. And social traffic was brand new at that point for, from a paid perspective. Mm -hmm. And so nobody really knew what to do when it came to online traffic. This was the point in time where people were just sending, uh, you know, any traffic, any clicks they could to the homepage of their website, which didn't help them at all in selling what they were offering. Right. There was no, there's no funnel. Uh, there was no funnel. There's no call to action. There was no, here's what you should do if you're interested in, you know, my services or even here's what my services are <laughs> or right. here's, or here's who I serve. Here's and my so, homepage. Yes. It's got flashing stuff. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, may, maybe here's a link to go buy my book. Right. At at at, at uh, Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah, it was before right? Amazon. That's yeah. Gosh, and so and true. so, uh, what happened was, and uh, you, I know you asked for success stories, but the real success in a lot of the work that I did was turning those terrible non-sales focused, um, you know, uh, websites into something that actually got people moving through a process or through what we now call a funnel. That's where I think I found the real success. Nice. So you were basically, before anyone really knew what a funnel was, you would just put up a CTA, some kind of opt-in, get them to buy something, but have a singular sale or at least driving towards a singular outcome. Because websites back in those days, it's actually funny. I did a, uh, we did a before and after a time machine um, last Wednesday on our web show where we went back and we looked at eBay in mm -hmm. 2002 and what their homepage looked like. Then we looked at some other sales pages that weren't even, they were be considered sales pages. Then nowadays they wouldn't last. No one like they would hundred percent of traffic would bounce. Sure. Um, so, okay. So you started running stuff for coaches. You started getting them to have a clear call to action and a, a clear flow through their website. How does that transition? Because let's say that's 2003 to like 2005, 2006, probably somewhere in there, right? I uh, know it's, it's, it's a bit later because uh, Facebook ads didn't start until 2007 Seven. to nine is where the that started. Yeah. So this was probably 2011, 2012. Okay. Yeah. So you're getting clear calls to action. You're starting to see how stuff works. Who's, whose stuff were you consuming at the time? Like who, who are your teachers? Gosh. Who are your mentors? Well, you know, I've, I've been a, a junkie of um, direct response, copywriting training for, for a long time. And, you know, I probably Dan Kennedy stuff early on Jay Abraham stuff for a very long time. Uh, and then some of the, I, I used to read, 
<laughs> I still do. And, and like, you know, most copywriters who are trained, I even you know, used to rewrite you know, a I lot went- of classic, um, uh, you know, sales letters for crazy stuff like i mean i love the agora things that are all about uh financial um you know we don't trust the stock market uh or the or the, or the professionals but here we got the secret back door that's going to let you into i i used to rewrite a ton of that stuff that's- so but it was entertainment for me i really wasn't taking it um you know, I, I remember as I'm telling you this, I'm thinking about I was sucked in by a lot of late night uh, uh, infomercials. I bought, you know, courses on how to trade commodities and things like that, which were sold with these, you know, 16 page sales letters that I you know got in the mail. Jeff Walker. I mean, Jeff Walker, the product launch formula, Jeff Walker got his start writing a financial newsletter that he then moved online and was selling. At first, he sold it for 10 bucks. Then he sold it for, I think, $79. No one understood pricing then. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, the stuff that you're talking about, I actually paid for a conference where we went and we hand wrote a sales letter for four hours and then we broke it all down. And the whole point is that it wires your synapses so that you understand copy a little bit better. And as boring as it was, it wasn't boring, but I was a little bit frustrated because it's like, why did I get on a plane and fly here? And this is what we're doing. I would say that that had, that definitely shifted paradigms for me and moved me forward. So direct marketing, Dan Kennedy, Gary Halbert, Jay Abraham, you named like the murderer's row. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think anybody worth their salt has probably studied some of their stuff somewhere yeah. along the time. So where does that, how does 2012 transition to where we're at now in 2020? Are you still mostly working with coaches? Are you working with some other people? Like how, what's your business look like now? Because you've, sure. so many of these ads agencies have come and gone. What I want the listeners to pick up on is what gave you the staying power and why are you still here? Because you've obviously done something right. Yeah, well, the the staying power and the why I'm still here is that I decided to do something else. (laughs) Um, So what, what I ultimately realized when it came to my business was that I had a tactic that I was selling and I was, you know, to, to some extent, uh, I was careful about vetting who I was selling it to and only aligning it with the right type of business to get them to the right type of customer on the platform that I knew how to, how to drive traffic from. Mm-hmm. And that's, there, there's a psychological, you know, aspect to running traffic from any particular platform. Facebook, nobody is scrolling through Facebook looking to buy stuff. I, I am, but most normal people aren't. And, and so, you know, wh- what is the psychology behind that approach is, is really interesting to me. But what a lot of people who either came to me didn't realize, uh, and certainly a lot of other marketers or marketing agencies or marketing service providers who specialize in one particular tactical approach or a handful Mm -hmm. is it's not always the best fit. And what happens once you get the traffic to the site? Right. For many, that's their job is done. And my recognition of the fact that you know a lot a lot of these clients who came to me in the first place didn't have anything set up in terms of a funnel 
Well, they didn't have a business model that was clearly thought out either when it came to all of the different opportunities that they had to maximize their revenue. And so uh, probably about 20, gosh, it's now about three years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. So that would have been 2018, 2017, something like that. Can't remember uh, what year I ended up doing this, but um, I basically stopped focusing on that business of driving traffic from Facebook. And I partnered up with uh, my current partner and started working on marketing strategy specifically around how to maximize revenue at any point along the the way um, uh, between the, the the business and customer relationship, and that's what we focus on these days. Awesome. So I mean that that is actually really good because you've been through so much of it. You did some direct response copy. You did the wine. You did the storytelling. You then did the ads. You also did the clear CTA and the funnel before funnels were even a thing. So you understand all of that, and now you're putting it to work doing strategy. <laughs> Yeah, because, uh, you know, ultimately, there's all these little pieces that um, business owners will will grasp, you know, this one little concept because they got exposed to that. And so you're, you're right. I, I learned this and then I learned this and then I learned this. And now I put all of those pieces of the puzzle together, but I understand how they fit right. in a way that a lot of our clients don't so that I can help them uh, make sure that I, First of all, that they're leveraging each and every piece that they have available to them, but also that they're emphasizing the things that they need to be emphasizing. And maybe they're, you know, abandoning the the things that really aren't the right fit for them anyway. Well, that's that is a big piece right there. I've like one of the strongest things I took away from Tim Ferriss is like you should probably be cutting a lot of things out that you're doing. If you can remove two things, you're going to go way farther, way faster than adding five things most of the time. Um, So let's talk a little bit then about what are, what's like one of the number one strategy mistakes that you see businesses making? Like if somebody hires you and you come in and you start working with them, what's, what's like one of the big things that you're like, stop doing this. Is there something that's yeah? I would well. I mean, the the biggest strategy mistake is that there's no strategy. <laughs> that that they don't understand the difference between tactics and strategies. And so when we when we have a conversation with them and we say, "Well, tell us about your marketing strategy," it's oh, um, I I respond to any Yelp review possible. <laughs> okay, that's not a strategy. But that that's I think that's a big um, uh, challenge. Is that strategy and tactics, even though, you know, it's as plain as day once it's, it's explained to someone. Well, let's, uh, let's break that down because that is actually something I've heard people say. They're like, what do you mean? I have a strategy. I respond to a Yelp review. Well, that's not a strategy. That's a singular tactic and it's not a very good one. So Mm -hmm. for the sake of our listeners, what would you define as a tactic? So I think a tactic is a, a, a given activity, a singular activity that is um, hopefully rep- um, getting you what you want and something that you're, you're repeatedly going back to, 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 to operate. But it's not necessarily going to get you from point A to point B, which is really what, what strategy is about. It's how do you move from the point, so now I'm talking about strategy, how do you move from the point where you are 
to the point where you want to be given everything that surrounds you. So the assets you have, the competition that's in play, uh, who you're trying to uh, speak to all of. So that's the strategy is how do you get from here to there? The tactic is the activity that you take along the path. And it may be a singular tactic. In most cases, there are multiple tactics that comprise the, uh, the achieve, achievement of that strategic approach. Sure. So I guess to break that down and define it a little further, email would be a specific, a specific tactic. Facebook ads is a tactic. Now there's yeah. strategy that goes on in the proper way to use those things to get you from where you are right now to making more sales, bringing more leads, making more money. Mm-hmm. Good. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So... The biggest thing is that I think business owners probably feel overwhelmed, right? Because they, they're going back to, you know, going back to the wine story. I have the best training. I went to Harvard. People should just come see me. I respond to Yelp ad. Why aren't they coming in? Um, they aren't coming in because you're not giving them a compelling, obvious reason. At least that's my theory. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear, David, like, when you start working with somebody and you've identified that they don't have a proper strategy, what's the, what's your like a top down process that you would just take them through to get them started? Yeah. So, you know, our, our approach is to really start not even with the, um, the pieces that we've been talking about, but, but actually before we even talk about who are you trying to speak to, what's the appropriate messaging, where, what's the appropriate channel we start with mission, vision, and values. Core values is something that most of us don't spend any time thinking about in our business, right? And how what we believe, what is important to us, um, contributes to the way that we operate our business. So that's actually one of the very first things that we will address with a new client is core values, because we want to make sure that what they're doing, what they're saying as they run their business actually reflect, reflects those core values. We want to make sure that the people that they are trying to bring into their business are a good match for those core values. And very often I found that there's a misalignment and that's why we start here, right? So so we'll start with mission, vision, values, and then we start talking about unique selling proposition, market positioning, and only then, once we have all of that sort of fundamental stuff in place, do we start talking about who you're trying to attract, what the messaging is, and what the tactical pieces are, like a lead magnet, like a you know, like a yeah. coupon or whatever it is that is appropriate to that given business. So, for somebody listening to this that runs a business, I can see them saying, "Why are my values important?" <laughs> Why does that matter? Why, like, I just want more money. I want more customers to come in and that has nothing to do. And my first, my gut response to that, like I've had people say that to me, right? I'm like, you, so you're competing on price then, right? Because there's obviously nothing else that you can compete on. Yeah, but I have the Whizbang 5000. Mm-hmm. They should come to me. This is why businesses fail. Yeah. So to put David on the spot... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about like why are values important and can you point out a company, big or small, that people would know that have strong values in place and that have positively affected their business? Can you give us an example? 
Gosh. Okay. Well, what, so why are values important? Um, you know, I, th I think one of the things that this is not really addressing the, the question that you, you asked in the way that I think you want it to, but let's think about um, some of the very um, polarizing things that are happening in our world these days. Okay. Um, let's, let's, you know, talk about, uh, I'm trying to think exactly what the, the situation was, but a bakery that refused to make a, a wedding cake for a same sex couple because they didn't believe, um, you know, that same sex marriage was appropriate. And so they weren't willing to support that. Now, had that bakery had some clarity around that being a core piece of their, you know, the, their worldview and, and what was important to them and what was important to them in the way that they operated their business, they may well have done things to uh, appropriately or properly project that to connect with like-minded consumers and to repel those who were not a good fit for using their services, right? Right. So I think I know you're, I know you're asking for a big name company, but I think that's prob that probably gives you you know a perfect example of why this is important because we all have priorities in 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 our lives and in in our perspective on um, the way the world operates and who we want surrounding us, and if you don't think about prioritize those things in the way that you uh, build your business, you may be setting yourself up for attracting all the wrong people simply because you're not clear enough. Now, I mean, like I said, that was a polarizing example, but I think it very clearly illustrates the importance of projecting, uh, uh, identifying, and then projecting properly so that you are connecting with the, the people who are most right. likely going to support your business. Absolutely. Um, I mean, things that come to top of mind for me are Chick-fil-A is a yeah. real easy one to point to. Um, love them or hate them. I'm not saying what you should do or wherever, but they have attracted a very strong consumer base that is, ra they're ravenous fans. They will spend more money. They will go there more often. Mm -hmm. Hobby Lobby comes to mind. Well, I mean, both um, both of these are ones that have politically charged um, right. uh, donations that have offended certain people or have in turn attracted people because of their perspective on, you know, particular um, highly charged issue. So I agree 100% in what you're saying. I know that some people out there get really squeamish and they're like, but I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to be polarizing. Well, the idea is that you're drawing a line and you're taking a side and you can stay away from religion. You can stay away from politics, but you should take sides. There are despite, despite the three examples that we just gave. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, so I'm giving you a lighter weight one. There are bars out there that, so I lived in Wrigleyville for a while and in, in Chicago, right? All the bars there supported the Cubs, except for one that didn't. Mm -hmm. So the one who didn't was always packed because the people who lived in Wrigleyville but didn't want to watch the Cubs could go to that bar. I always thought that was really interesting. I didn't get it at the time, but yeah. now looking back on it, I get that one quite a bit. Um, but there, if a bar, if you, wherever you're at, if you're in Boston and there's a bar that, you know, follows 
the Dodgers, it's going to attract the Dodgers fans, right? Like that's drawing a line. The other things could be, I mean, stay away from politics and religion. You could just be, stay away from politics, religion. And if you're going to compete on price, you want to finish this sentence for me? What should people do? Well, I, I was, I was going to say, don't. <laughs> Be the most expensive in the market. Yeah. If you're going to compete uh, on price. Uh, that, that, that is true. That is true. Be the most and, yeah. expensive, but you have to follow up. You have to be the best service. You have to do all the other things the best as well. That, that are in line with uh, the pricing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise, throw the price out the window. Don't compete on price. People, at the end of the day, buy from people they know, like, and trust. Those are the three things. And the fastest way you can do that is by being polarizing, aligning with their values treating people well, doing a good job, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, it doesn't matter. Treat people well, right? Like if you do that, you'll work well. The same thing goes for politics, religion, any of it. You should always treat people well. Um, so we kind of covered where strategy falls in. What would be the biggest thing that you think would help people add money to their bottom line in the business outside of strategy. If somebody just came to you, let's say they have some strategy going, I'm asking for a tactic. What do you, what's like your favorite one or two tactics? Cause I know well, people I, you know, will ask. I, I, this is, this is going to um, ride a little bit on, on the coattails of what you were just saying about treating people well, because I think that, too many businesses focus on two areas of, of uh, finding clientele. Mm -hmm. One is getting new people in the front door all the time, attracting new leads, mm -hmm. right? The other one is referrals. But what most businesses don't focus on nearly enough, by a long shot, is taking really good care of the customers they have. And so what is the tactic that I would say most businesses should focus on is surprising, delighting, and wowing the, the, the fans that already exist, the people who are making them fans, right? Creating fans out of your existing clientele. What are some easy ways that businesses can do that? Well, what, I agree. What, yeah, one, one is um, communicating. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something that I think is pretty oh. darn easy. Oh my God. I have to send an email and actually like say something nice. Is that, is that what you mean? Yep. J just, just before we got on to record this, uh, my partner and I were talking about a winery client of ours and I, we do work with some wineries still, um, that, uh, has a dedicated email marketing program. They email quarterly. That's four whole emails a year. <laughs> wow. We, we've we've addressed that with them, but that's not uncommon. Get a, a copywriter, four yeah. emails a week, <laughs> a week, tell a fun wine story, chicken soup for the wine lover's soul. Every they week we're going to come that, but yeah, you, you, you get the point. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, whatever, name it something else. Wine corks. Like that's, I mean, that, I think that's a home run. Everybody loves to read stories about people that drink wine. Here's something crazy that happened anyway. But, but here's, here's the reason why these guys don't do it. They're too busy. And that's, that's a, a, a chronic problem that most businesses have is that they're not prioritizing the things that are actually revenue generating for them. That right? is, Commun that is one of the biggest 
problems in the world by far. When I consulted for businesses, you would be same thing. I'd walk in and I'd be like, you're spending 80% of your time on things that do not make money or matter, but they're important to you, right? That's what they always say. But but I need to do X, Y, Z. No, no, no. Anyway, yeah. I I love that answer because I think it go well, I'm gonna let you talk more about the email or communicating because that's turning existing clients. You've spent the money. The most expensive cost in business is generating a new client. Your referrals will go up and your customers will rebuy from you over and over and over again if they love you. The more they love you, the more they will buy. Yes. So email is one way to reach out to them. What's another way that people can communicate that might be even easier? (sighs) That might be even easier. Um, you You know, I think that if you program things into your business to either reward or acknowledge your clientele, um, I, I'm not sure what would be easier than email because, frankly, I find email pretty darn easy. Um, but but it's the experience. Ah, I see. I see where you're going. Yeah, you know, I, I was I was just on a uh, a call yesterday with my my uh, good friends over at Keep, uh, who have announced that they are about to drop the famous Infusionsoft name. I don't know when you're airing this, but come February 2021, Infusionsoft will be no more, and <laughs> they are incorporating SMS automation into their platform. And so, yes, uh, I think you're seeing more and more for an existing customer who has given you their their phone number and given you permission to contact them that way. By the way, that's important. Then that's that's even easier to get people um, to to engage with you because it is a a tool, their phone that is always on their person anywhere they go. Even the unmentionable places they go. Well, that's, I mean, phone, email, video. The biggest thing, though, that I'm going to hit on, because I know people are like, one of my clients was like, I don't want to send emails because I hate getting spam. I said, well, then don't spam people. Take the time. How do you email somebody, right? When I, if I were emailing you, I'd say, hey, David, what's going on, man? I wanted you to check out XYZ right? It's going to be three sentences. It's going to provide value. If I tell you a story, it's going to be a great, funny story. It's not going to be, hey, David, look at what I'm selling. I really hope you buy my stuff. (laughs) Because nobody wants that email, right? Yeah, you know, there are marketers who are very, very successful doing that. However, they they burn the relationship with their uh, subscribers um, very quickly. Right. So it can be highly profitable, but you have to constantly be adding new people to your email list who are going to put up with that for a while and buy everything you got and then and then then leave. Well, I mean, you can sell in an email. I have no problem with the sale, but it it shouldn't be like in like push like that shouldn't be your only point because nobody likes the realtor that comes in and says, Hey, can I list your house? Can I list your house? Can I list your house? You like the realtor shows up, says, Hey, what are you doing, man? How's your son doing? How are you guys doing? Yep. 
Like, so, so I think you know, I, I work with um, a lot of financial advisors, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we focus on is what can I say in emails? If 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 you're in that profession. First of all, just like any other profession, you're way too busy to be emailing people, so you don't. And so what you end up doing is the the uh, broker dealer or whoever you're working with who's, who runs the back office of your business gives you access to a vendor that they have worked at a deal with who writes the emails for you. And you just like, you know, you, you, you put it into your email marketing system. Uh, it's really, you know, um, engaging content about uh, um, financial derivatives and um, the the latest, you know, product that's available for for you to, you know, do some sort of reverse mortgage on your, oh, it's so compelling. I'm being totally (laughs) facetious. The sarcasm. Yes. The so so we tr- and and so a lot of these guys they send it out and they, and they hate it and they say well email doesn't work and I said well here's the problem <laughs> you're sending people stuff they don't care about nobody Send- cares about these these products that you have they care about you caring about them they they care about themselves and so how do we build that relationship so you were given some some uh, examples of the personal and personable way in which we engage via email. But then what do you write about? Well, for for our clients, their email list of non-clients, so people they're they're trying to get to become clients, the the call to action on pretty much every single email is here's the link to schedule an appointment with me. But how do we get from, you know, dear so and so to schedule the appointment. And so I work through a a list that I'm constantly adding to of types of emails they can write. Mm -hmm. Leverage something that's in the news that they care about, right? Or write something about something cool that happened to your family. Or write something, if, if you work with business owners, talk about the fact that you're a fellow business owner. And here's something that you do in your business and you highly recommend that service or that product that they should check it out. And then, fi- and then we talk about lots of ways to bridge the, the content of the email to the, oh, by the way, here's where to book the appointment. Now, I, I brought something up that I, uh, I think is important because I kind of, we, we haven't addressed this and I kind of glossed over it earlier, which is, the importance of having, and this speaks a little bit to something you raised earlier when we were talking about polarization, is if you take a stand, if you are, if you position yourself a certain way, you are likely to attract a certain type of individual or a certain demographic or a certain profession or a certain whatever. And the more specific you can get about who it is you are serving, the more effective you can be in the types of communications I was just talking about. So one of the the areas that I tell my clients to focus on in their emails are to write about things that their audience or their, their subscribers care about. Now, if they have a subscriber list of anyone and everyone under the sun, the only thing that they can think of that those people are going to care about is their retirement. And nobody, frankly, is interested in receiving emails about retirement. So 
one of the activities we engage in early on with clients is to get a really, really, really clear picture. We go a little overboard on this, on their ideal client avatar. So much so that we're looking at, you know, what hobbies are these people interested in? What magazines do they read? Who, you know, who are their, what are their favorite movies? What books? What, so that you can tie all that stuff into these emails that they're going to say, oh, John, John Le Carre just died, right? Maybe he's a huge fan or maybe, maybe you know, the readers are a huge fan of his work. Let's talk about that. And you can leverage that kind of thing. That's, I mean, it's a hundred percent true. Um, I always, I mean, I, our client base is a little bit different. Um, I just tell people to write about things that they care about, but write it in a way that's fun and exciting to read because you'll attract the people that are like you for in coaches or consultants. You want to work with people that you like financial advisors are a little bit different, but it's the other thing that I say that is the easiest to me is if you can't think about anything that you would want to say, Send a quote or send a funny joke. Send something that makes people laugh. If you do that, they will remember you and they'll open your next email because subconsciously they remember feeling good. And you can't ever go wrong making somebody feel good. Hey, I'm a financial advisor. I just wanted to make you laugh because the market's down a little bit today. Check out this crazy cat video. If you want to schedule an appointment with me and help your retirement account, here's the link. Like I would do something like that. It's short, it's sweet. Most people open it on their phone. So if you send them a mile long email, they're not going to read all of it. That's my opinion, but. I, I, I mean, actually agree with that. And I, I'm stealing your idea. It's it's going into, it's going into the swipe file. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> you can never go wrong making somebody laugh ever. Like yeah. I, my email open response right now, my email open rate is over 24%. I mail four to eight times a week. Like there are a couple of days I send two emails a day if I'm if I'm really hammering on something. Usually it's usually I try to stay around five days a week. Um, even with the stuff going on with Gmail right now, I'm keeping my email open rates up because people enjoy reading my crap. And I can't spell. I don't have good grammar. I know these things. I it, it's in my onboarding sequence. Like, hey, I don't write so well. I'm really good at video, but I want to keep in touch with you. It's important to me. Every email you get is going to be written by me probably at 11 o'clock at night after I've had some scotch. Enjoy. Uh, it's beautiful. But that if you just listen to that, that probably connects with you on some level, right? Like no one can be upset if I misspell a word. Mm-hmm. They know I'm professional. They know I care. But that's email is still people who say email is dead. I laugh at because they're missing the boat. Yeah, and and twenty something percent open rates. By the way, these days is pretty spectacular. I mean, I think I think that it's you know average across the board is is somewhere around twelve at at this point, and you know going going down even further. But when you follow some of the suggestions that you made, that that you're training people to look forward to that next email because the stuff that you send them is fun. Right. So one one of the principles that I share with most of my clients is, you know, unless you're, you know, in a business where it's just totally inappropriate, you should be entertaining in your email as much as possible. That's dude, nobody everybody loves entertainment. Anyone who argues and says they're too professional for that, um, I would I've I've dealt with some chiropractors. I dealt with a plastic surgeon who was like, I don't want my people to laugh. They need to understand that I'm stoic and uh, da, 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 da. I said that's you're you're boring is what you are. 
Um, we had a really fun conversation around that, but then we went our separate ways. So whatever. Um, David, this has been a super fun conversation ranging from everything. I mean, we've, we've covered the world, which is fun. Uh, what's your favorite wine? Favorite oh, red, favorite white. Favorite white? Yeah. And uh, You got a white and a red? I, well, yes. And they happen to, well, uh, here's the thing. My favorite winery produces both. Okay. It is uh, a winery based in uh, Rioja in this, in this very t- tiny town of Aro called Lopez de Aredia. And um, they, they are uh, old, old school from the 1870s. Uh, and they released their reds and their whites pretty darn late after vintage, typically something like uh, eight to 10 years. And I love classical old white Rioja. All right. I was asking because if anybody got something out of this, you need to go t- contact David, send him a bottle of wine. He'll probably have a chat with you and help you grow your business. You can also talk to me, but he's going to be your contact for financial advisors, or if you just want to send him some good wine. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all of your information with us. If people are looking to get in touch with you, where should they reach out? Do you have a link above or below or around the video? Then then we'll just send them to that link. Let's just do that. Yeah, it'll. everything is in the show notes. Um, you can check him out. Thank you so much for being a wonderfully entertaining guest and sharing all of your wisdom with us. David, it's been great having you on. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. No problem. To all of the rest of you, we will see you next time. Until then, take action, change lives, and make money. We'll see you soon. Nothing has the ability to grow your business more than a powerful one-to-many sales presentation. If you're looking to scale your business, get your message out to more people and close more sales in an easy and straightforward manner, head over to deathtobadwebinars.com and grab your free course today. Thanks for tuning into the show and we'll see you next time.